to help. And so just a thing to think about this week, maybe as we start our days, maybe with your, your first cup of coffee or as you brush your teeth or as some like thing that you do every day, maybe let that be an act of thankfulness. And brush your teeth long enough to list a couple things. I think it would serve us well, and I think there's some power in, in what Paul is saying to this church that is facing so much that like, okay, there's an abounding in thanksgiving that happens. So how else does Paul tell this church in Colossians, uh, in Colossians to continue? He says, watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ." Paul goes on to explain what this text means to the church at that time, but what, what about you and me? What, is, what does this mean? Let's take the, the heart of the sentence. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophies and empty deceit. Be careful of what you take in. Be careful of who you're listening to. Be careful of who you're influenced by. The church here was told that they weren't enough. That's part of what, what this is, that their worship was incorrect, that their background was incorrect, that everything was not enough. And the problem is that they were listening and agreeing and trying to fix something that wasn't theirs to fix. We're talking about people discrediting the Colossians here, that they needed to do more and they needed to do different, that they were not God's people. And I think at different points, many of us have heard that too, either about ourselves or about people that we love. But there's not space for us or for them that we're doing this wrong, all of that. Look, look at what... Paul says next, and I'm going to read the, the others were in the NRSV. I'm going to read this one in the NIV. He says, when, in verse 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Big chunk. Go ahead and open it up 13 through 15 in Colossians 2 there. The Colossians were a Gentile people, right? Some of these churches are more Jewish in, in background. The Colossians are a Gentile people. Gentile people were not circumcised generally. That's the mark of Jewish people. And so this very beginning is saying when you were dead in your sin, and you were not marked as the people of God? At that time, when, when you were marked by sin, not by the mark of being God's people, at that time, God made you alive with Christ. This is significant. He's not saying that after you got it figured out, 
after you did some stuff, after you snuck in the right door and sat in the right pew and did the right activities and all this, then God was like, okay, I finally approve of you. Saying really clearly that when your body showed that you were not the people of God and when your life was darkened by just being about sin and nothing else, at that point, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave everything. We know this is pretty elemental to our faith, right? Some of these elemental things are foundational. We need to know this. If God has forgiven you, can you? If God has said you are the people of God, can, can, can you? Can you agree? You don't have to say it first. You just agree. God has forgiven me. I guess I can learn how to. God has said that I am the people of God even though he first called me when I was in darkness, when all of the... Okay. Can you agree? That this is the work that God has already done. And it's not just that he did it like in the secrets of your own heart. That's good enough. But there's this powerful imagery at the end here where he says, Paul says that God made a public spectacle over the powers and principalities. That's a weird phrase to us. But anyone living at this time, that's a really clear phrase, especially in the Roman Empire. So when Rome would come to a city, like Philippi, like Ephesus, like any of these that we read about, Rome would come and conquer. We've talked about how the Roman Empire's view of things kind of influences the church some, right? How That's how we sometimes do this, like like an empire. But they, they would come and conquer a city, and then they would take the city leadership and put them in some sort of like portable jail cell, pretty much. And they would, or in chains, sometimes they were like carried, and sometimes they were just in chains. And they were marched through the city, and often even through Rome, as a spectacle of the power of Rome. The former kings and leaders and all of this in chains or in these portable jail cells on top of people's shoulders marched through as a spectacle that says Rome is the authority. Rome is the powerful one. And so Paul's giving this illustration of these powers and principalities that we, we see as very powerful. We see them as very limiting saying that Jesus has, has publicly, publicly announced that though your sins were sins, they're nailed to the cross. Though your guilt was guilt, it's nailed to the cross. These powers, they've lost their power. Jesus is the one who has freed you and has done enough. Then there's this interesting turn in the very next verses. He writes, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in manners of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to, Jesus, to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you. So he's talking about worship here. He's talking about what we would talk of as like spiritual disciplines, habits, in public worship. 
And he says, do not let anyone condemn you for how you worship and how you live. And some of us need to to hear that. Not just in our ears, but like in ourselves. Because we carry a lot of guilt that we don't do enough. or, Or we aren't enough. Or we... All of these kind of things. I know sometimes when we come in on Sundays, we get nervous because there's like four of us. Sometimes we start church pretty late because the worship team's singing to me at the beginning. That's part of our culture, and that's really okay. Because what we're saying is some people, I mean, yes, I, I hope that all of us come and participate and, and are here for each other, but sometimes some people have some other places to be, and that's okay. God is with them. Sometimes people are with us on Zoom instead because they needed to sleep in or they had a hard night or their kids are struggling or we don't have kids' church that week or whatever. That's okay. God is with it. We're not saying that you are only the people of God if you have 52 weeks out of 52. But a lot of us have heard those kind of messages. Now, do we go do whatever we want? No. I mean, that that gets us in trouble, right? I was telling Mike earlier that my favorite college teams are Louisville and Minnesota. Louisville played Friday night. My favorite pro team is the Vikings. They play Monday night. And I was like, wow, I could accidentally watch football from like 7 o'clock Friday until Monday night because there's games on all the time. And I don't even necessarily want to, but it's just like if you set a bowl of Cheetos in front of me, they're going to disappear. didn't necessarily want them. They were just there. We don't just do what we want. That's not ever what Paul is writing. Paul Paul says in other places, like, do we just continue sinning so grace abounds? No, that's not it. But we need to know why we do what we do. And we don't just let someone condemn us because we do things different than them. So studying this text, I even felt some guilt that I have done this. You guys know how much Sabbath has meant to me and slowing down has meant to me? I think sometimes I act like that is the grace by which we're saved. It's not. Jesus is. That practice has been extremely meaningful to me. But if if you're in a space where you can't practice it the same or you haven't found Jesus the same in that, the point is that we find Jesus. The point is that we experience God. See, we want to live in a way that helps us continue on in Christ and to remain. And so food and drink, new moons and Sabbath, those are all about the ways that you worship. They're about spiritual disciplines. I have my favorites. You probably do as well. But let's be honest about them. So even, you guys may have heard the the term Lectio Divina. It's a way of reading Scripture and going through Scripture Uh, A few of the people in our church have gone through spiritual direction training, and it's a big part of that and learning to just reflect on Scripture through this practice. It's extremely helpful to a lot of people. But it's really just someone found a way to experience God through the text and then has taught this way of doing it. The point is just experiencing God. That's the point. And so if you don't read that way, you read another way or you listen to Scripture, the point is that we're experiencing God. The point is that we're continuing to remain in Jesus. It's not that we do the same practices. 
Even if you look at the way that we do church, where you come in and there's a, the few songs that are played and prayers that are prayed and passing the love and, and shaking hands and high fives and all of this, and then we have a time of reflecting on Scripture, then we have communion. All of that is how the people of God collectively over centuries have found that they have experienced God in corporate worship. That's what that is. The actual ceremony of it, there, there's nothing to that except, oh, this is how we for generations have experienced God. And so let's continue because we want to experience God. So when we move that to goodwill for a week, and it's a little different because we have pancakes afterwards, the point is that we experience God. When we have those Sundays where instead of a sermon we have a panel of people who are talking about how they have experienced God in, in the different ways, the point is, is not so much that I have a mic for 20, 30 minutes. It's that we experience who God is and we're transformed by who God is. That's the point of why we're gathering, right? And then to have this shared experience here. All of this is to help us remain in Christ. And if something helps you, like if going for a walk through nature helps you experience God, then... I encourage you, go for as many walks as you can. But if it doesn't, then it's good for your exercise. But find the things that help you to experience God, to experience community, to grow and continue in this path of remaining in Jesus. We get to remain as daughters and sons of the God Most High. But when I think about that, it makes me think, like, what are we actually supposed to do? Because I think that's why we make, like, the to-do of praying and Scripture and all. That, that gives us a task, right? What, I feel like we should have something to do, especially with lofty titles like Daughters and Sons of God. There should be a task. I thought of this when the Queen passed. Like, I didn't, the Queen matters for people all over the place. But my honest question, I didn't mean it mean, but, like, I don't know what she does. I knew she like shook hands and was very meaningful and her picture was on a lot of things, but I, I didn't know what tasks the royal family had. So I started to like Google it. What do they do? And I think that's a question that we have and we settle for some things sometimes or, or we go to a church that tells us exactly what's expected of us. And that's, we haven't really found that here, right? Nikki and I will talk a lot about how we grew up at a very unique time in, in history. Some of you guys are real close to our age. We grew up at this time where, like, we always had computers, but we also always had, like, the old school stuff. You know, both were present. We had cell phones for our whole marriage, but we also knew how to live without a cell phone. We also took road trips with actual maps that people don't know they exist anymore. Like, we've done both of those. And one of the old school games I was given as a kid that I loved was uh, it, it was called electronic football. Have, have you all ever heard of this? Okay, electronic football is like a really thin cookie sheet that's painted to look like a football field. And then there's a bunch of little football guys made of plastic that just stand on it like this. Like the linemen look like this, and the receivers look like this, and the quarterback has a little arm that goes like this, and his foot kicks. He plays two positions. But they're just frozen, and they have little mats that they sit on, and you tell the mat forward or backwards, 
and then you line up the guys, and you're supposed to play against each other, so you line up two fields, and then you turn the cookie sheet on, and it just shakes, and the guys just go like that. And you watch really, really close, because one of them has a tiny piece of foam tucked under his arm, and as soon as the other team touches the foam, he's down, and you turn it off, and you set everything up again. And sometimes they go backwards, and you can't do anything. Or you get the guy who goes like this, and you're supposed to just let it happen. And they all just do what they do. That's it. Right? And I think sometimes we think that's what like, our Christian life is supposed to do. Tell me what to do. Okay, we all go forward. And then you turn life on, and we just go. But spirituality is not like that. God is not like that. We know, we know that we looked at a text this summer where God says to Peter, come follow me. And Peter's upset, wanting John to have to follow the same way he does. And Jesus is like, no, John is remaining in me. John is doing what he's supposed to do. You have different tasks. That's part of what is so exciting and enjoyable about this life with God is that the Holy Spirit gives you a task and gives me another one. And we don't have to just do this through our life. But we get to follow after God's lead. We get to celebrate that we're different and then come together and worship as one. Now churches are distinct too. Different churches have different tasks, kind of gather together of people who are like in their task. That's beautiful. That's good. It's distinct. We want to celebrate the complexity of God that's revealed in those ways. But all of us from everywhere have one thing that is in common for sure. No matter which direction God has you going, no matter which part you have to play, no matter any of that, we know from Jesus that He says that this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is not a theoretical thing. This is not just something that we think about or sing about. This is something that is to come out in our actions. And I think the striking thing for me on this is that our example is not one another. We're not supposed to love one another as we have been loved by our family of origin, by our spouse, by our kids, by our neighbors. Learning to love for some of us has been hard because we've come from places where that love is conditional and all that, and you can kind of just settle in. You never say it, but you can kind of settle in as like, well, I think I'm, I'm doing all right compared to where I came from, and we can just kind of coast a little. But our example is Jesus. Love as I have loved, which is lavished. Right? I've talked to you guys about how my grandma used to put butter on lefsa. That, that's always the example I have of how much God loves me is, is way too much with the kind of love that makes you feel like, no, no, I don't know. I don't need all that. That's our example, that we're to love in that way. And it makes me wonder, how am I doing? How are we doing together? And it's not like we get a letter grade, but we get opportunities to remember and opportunities to practice these very things, right? And that's how I actually want to frame October. And in just a minute, we're going to receive communion, and so Wayne's going to pass out some 
some cups here, but we have some opportunities to practice being who we are. We have some opportunities to practice loving with Jesus as our example. October 2nd, when we go to Goodwill, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We're not going to have the right amount of food. I guarantee you. That is what's going to happen. Is we will have way too much or way too little. That's just what happens at church things. Somebody's going to run to Kroger because I didn't do it right. Those are the things that happen. That's okay. The point of what we're doing is we're going to go practice loving as Jesus has loved us. And it's going to be a little messy. And it's going to be the best that we can with the best and the most that we can. And it's going to be best we can. We're going to lavish love on people because that's what Jesus does. But then in our group life, that's what our groups are to be. Maybe you're at a place where you don't sense that you need a lot of community. I will tell you from talking to people here, other people here do need it and need you as a part of that. And I don't mean this as guilt, but if you're in a place of like, uh, okay, I've got some love to give or receive from people, this is a place to practice that. To practice what it's like to be seen and cared for, prayed for, and loved on. That's why we do them, right? We don't do them just to fill up your calendar. We do them to have points in time and place to say, hey, you can come here and practice loving as Jesus does and receive love best that people can. And it'll be around these different like-minded topics, topics like gardening and eating, Scripture, and Howard Thurman. That's what this is. That's what we're being invited into. But right now we're going to receive communion. And Wayne is waking up and about to pass out some, some cups. Go ahead and raise your hand if, if you need one. I know that this morning was very wander-y, but my mind's kind of been all over. You guys gave me a lot of time off. And maybe you came in here like, I, okay, the idea of that I don't need to prove myself. Okay, that, that's good news to me today. That the point of all of this is to, to remain and, and that's it, that I don't have to feel condemnation. Maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe it's the reminder that we're to, to love. Maybe it's something that was sung in a song or set up past the love. But at this moment, together as a body, we remember that Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, he was gathered together with friends who had a very different understanding of what the kingdom of God was going to look like even that week. And yet in the midst of all that misunderstanding, in the midst of some of that confusion and excitement and everything, Jesus, I believe, looked at his friends and he took the bread and he broke it. He said, every time you gather, remember that this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me.
and he took the cup that already had great meaning to their faith. He said, I'm going to change this meaning. Now when you gather together, I want you to remember that this is my blood which is shed for you. This is my blood that is shed so that you can know that when you were in darkness, when you were not God's people, when you were distant, you're already made alive in Christ, that it was enough. So when you gather, drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your people here and online. I ask that you'd help us to continue to recognize that you pursue us. Continue to put ourselves in places where we can experience more and more of you and our identity can be more and more set on who you say that we are. May we love well in your name.